Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's Mike Bouchard, the host of the Night Stalker podcast series. This is going to be episode number 20, entitled The Vernon Creeper. Between 1968 and 1978, Vernon, Connecticut, had the disappearances of um, several young and teenage white females, starting on um, July 24th, 1968. You had Deborah Spickler, uh, then July 26th of 1973, you had Janice Pocket, 71, you had Irene LaRosa, November 1st of 1974, you had Lisa Joy White, June 22nd, 1975, you had Susan LaRosa, Now, the interesting thing about these disappearances, many people have written about all of these disappearances. And to preface the story, and by now if you've listened to my podcast, you'll understand that I tell it how it is. It gets somewhat daunting having to listen to online podcasts with people pretending to be investigators, never investigating anything, and coming up with their assertions of who and why these crimes were committed. In this next 30, 30 minutes, I'm going to try to do a, a slight overview. I'm not going to particularly address each individual case because there's no need to do that. Um, the cases can be found online uh, or in my book, Missing in Connecticut. The issue you have with cases like this because they are so geographically similar in the area, most of them occurring in Vernon, Connecticut, one outside of in Tallinn, Connecticut, um, because they are so close geographically, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us a few things. It tells us the individual committing these crimes. When we look at the demographics of the the individuals that have disappeared, all younger, teenage down to younger children, all female, all white, disappeared, never were found. So, 
and again, let's start at the locations of where these victims, because that's what they are. They were never found. They were all homicides. They all appear on the Doe Network. You can research it there, too. We have people, and I'm going to call these people car salesmen because that's what they are. They have no law enforcement experience. They have no real investigative experience. They may have written for newspapers. They may have been radio hosts on TV. Um, one actually deems himself a crime specialist. I don't know exactly what the hell that means, but in law enforcement terms, it doesn't mean much of anything. Okay. The difference with us who have been in law enforcement, we spend our whole careers interviewing people, solving crimes, making arrests, and that's what we do. We don't go researching, we interview, and some occasions we interrogate, collect evidence, write warrants, indict people. That's what we do, okay? We don't sit back calling ourselves crime specialists, whatever the hell that is. And we don't come up with Ideas that are totally misleading in cases like this. These are all very traumatizing cases for the victim's relatives, parents, siblings. So, so why do I bring that up? Well... In some of these cases in Vernon, you have one individual, very well-known, podcasts, TV show, so on and so forth, believing that a set of brothers from Massachusetts were responsible for the abduction of a few of these girls. Um... Then we also have another individual who believes an individual named Charles Paris was responsible for the disappearance of another out-of-stater. And I was also on a podcast not too long ago where the, the podcast host has also written a, a book on some of the disappearances, and he is also under the impression that it's uh, either two brothers or a uh, Charles Pierce. Oh, let's let's start off with the why I'm not an investigator, why I claim to be a lot of things, and why they're so far off the market. Scary. Think about it. I've identified 
at least five, five females that had disappeared in that area. However, there were three other ones that were disappeared. Slightly older, modus of operandi, slightly different. But with that being said, geographically, all within the same area. So what do we look for as investigators in the case when we have no specific person of interest for <clears throat> any one case anyway? We look for links either physically modus operandi disappeared, hidden, not found, kidnapped and found on the side of the road with no attempt to hide. There's a number of scenarios you can go through. When you start looking at a lot of cases, what happens is you start to identify some of these similarities. So, in the first set, the younger females all disappeared between 68 and 74. Bodies kidnapped, abducted, whatever term you want to use, it's all the same. Never recovered. Never found. I believe the oldest one at that time was probably Irene LaRosa, 17 years old, disappeared in 1971 from, actually it was Ellington, Connecticut. And you'll, you'll see where I'm going with this in a little while down the road. Never found. None of these bodies were ever found. All in the Vernon area. Or just without, or just outside of that, that city limit. There's other ones that had disappeared were victims of homicides that were found disappeared from Vernon. Uh, Stephanie Olinsky um, a couple other ones slightly older. So what happened? After 74 the demographic Graphics changed. Slightly older, still white females. Victims of homicides. However, the, the bodies were recovered. The breaking point was Susan LaRosa, who disappeared in 1973. Her body was found in 78 in Vernon. Disappeared from Vernon. So you may say, Mike, well, Okay, so where's the link? Well, here's the link. In 1971, Susan LaRosa's niece, Irene LaRosa, disappeared from Ellington. Okay, here's our link. Two relatives. What's, it, what's the chances? Okay, what's the chances? Very, very slim chance. Statistically speaking, what was the second link? Irene LaRosa was the husband of Robert LaRosa. Robert LaRosa was the brother of Irene LaRosa. 
Okay, follow me. The Vernon Police Department at that time were unable to get an indictment for Robert LaRosa because up until 2016 they were unaware Irene LaRosa was even missing. Robert had spun a spun a web to his family about him filing a missing persons report. Uh, had a lot of bolstered statements. Uh, you know, she had moved to Meriden. <clears throat> she had got married, fell in love with a school teacher. Um, you know, let's face it. You know, you could tell me that crap till uh, I'm blue in the face. It's not, or you're blue in the face. It's not going to work with me. All right. So, our links are starting to show. Robert LaRosa, where did Robert LaRosa live? Vernon, Connecticut. So, okay, so that's two people that Robert had contact with or knew. That's right. Those were two people he knew. Two people had disappeared, one found, one not found. But they were both abducted or killed and dumped in one of the cases. Robert, along with his brother-in-law, Barry, at the time of all of these disappearances, had resided in Vernon, Connecticut. If you look at Janice Pocket, Janice Pocket went to school in the Tallinn school system. Robert's brother-in-law, Barry, worked as a janitor in the Tallinn school system. So you may say, oh, that's a coincidence. Well, was it a coincidence when the police went to find Janice Pocket's medical records at the school? They weren't there. Hmm. Think about that one. Was it a coincidence that Lisa Joy White and Pocket were on the same cheerleading team? Like I always tell you, there's no such thing as coincidences. So what do we know about our killer now? We know that he's safe. He feels safe in front of Connecticut. He knows it. He knows the people in it. His relatives all live there. They're secure in Vernon, Connecticut. It's very easy to make things happen when you know the geography of the town and the people. It also helps when you have people in town that work for the police department. 
that owe you favors. Okay? And yes, I will call out my own when shit happens. There was a piece of evidence used in the Susan LaRosa homicide, a putty knife that one of the sister-in-laws was given, the putty knife was given to her by Robert to clean the blood off the floor in the apartment at 22 Ward Street, which she did. She returns the putty knife. Robert takes it back. Robert, after Susan's death, Robert's girlfriend, within two days, moves in. Robert and his new wife have a child girl. As time goes on, the girl gets older, decides she likes the guy next door who both Robert and Robin, his new wife, can't stand. The best way to describe the new boyfriend is criminal. So following the typical criminal pattern. He's over at the La Rosa house, which was at that time in Stafford Springs. He's poking around the basement that he shouldn't have been in. And he finds himself, he finds himself a cigar box. Not just a cigar box. cigar box containing a piece of fabric, flowered fabric, the same flowered fabric that was used to make the dress that Susan Rosa disappeared in. So, Okay, so that's a little co- that's a little bit of a coincidence, I would say, a little bit. What well, wasn't a coincidence was the putty knife that was inside of it, wrapped wrapped inside of it. Now. Remember, I had spoken with the relative that used a putty knife to clean the blood off the floor, which the Vernon police tell me doesn't exist, which it does because I had four witnesses tell me it exists, so it exists. The contention in this part of the case was that this person that happened to find this putty knife turned evidence into the police department whose the 
department told me it didn't exist. The resident trooper at the time told me it didn't exist. But what they didn't know was at the time of the Susan's homicide, her five-year-old daughter was there watching. What they didn't know was I interviewed the five-year-old daughter before I even started my investigation. Took a lot of notes. Made a lot of bullet points. As I was doing the investigation, each one of these bullet points was hit. What I didn't expect was a letter that she produced from the police department thanking her or this gentleman for turning in the evidence. Um, When they heard that that letter existed, they wanted it back. Well, that's not going to happen, ever. So, another interesting fact. After the disappearance of the putty knife from the basement at Stafford Spring House, both the boyfriend that found it, the daughter, the daughter, the boyfriend found it, within a year period, year's period of time, are now deceased. Okay? So, not to go off on a tangent, but the similarities are pretty freaking scary. I had caught up with a relative in Kane in Maine, the ex-brother-in-law. I had interviewed him, and although he lied to me about several things, which I already knew he was lying, and I expected him to lie, he was probably the most honest person out of everyone I interviewed. Um, His wife lied to me. Her basic thing was that um, the night of Susan's homicide, her husband didn't come back that night. What she forgot to tell me was that when Barry was made aware of the situation at Robert's home on 22 Ward Street, that she accompanied her husband in his own words. Okay? He says to me he was made aware of a, a situation at the La Rosa house. Didn't explain why. I didn't explain to him I knew. I knew that because the young daughter saw the husband leave the wife, Susan, on the floor when he went out to get help. Who was the help? Well, let's guess. Okay. The ex-brother-in-law says, well, I thought it suspicious when me and my wife approached the house that Barry began yelling, not Barry, but uh, Robert began yelling at us, get away from my fucking car, get away from my fucking car. 
I said, Mulberry, why do you think he said get away from his fucking car? He says, well, Susan's body was in it. Well, I knew you knew that because the daughter saw you and Robert carry the body downstairs and put her in the backseat of the fucking car. Okay? I knew that. I wasn't going to tell you I knew that, but I knew that. I said to him, well, what did you see when you were inside the house? He said, I never saw anything like it before. I said, what do you mean? He said, it looked like somebody pulled the head off a cat and spun it by his tail. There was blood all over the place. He says to me, what caught my attention, though, well, that would have caught my fucking attention real fast, blood all over the fucking place, but okay. What did catch your attention? It was a big bloody rock in the living room. Hmm. Well, one, I never told... I never told the ex-brother-in-law that Susan was killed in the living room. Nor did I tell me he was, she was hit in the head with a blunt object. Everybody thought for a while it was a metal pipe, this, that, and the other thing. Well, now we know it's a rock. Do I believe Barry had anything to do with the homicide? No. I think Barry was just afraid of Robert and Robert told him to ditch, you know, to help me move the body, and that's what he did. I don't think he had anything to do with it. Um, One of his statements to me as I was interviewing him, actually a couple, and we'll go around, we'll we'll get, get around to this right now, was, I remember driving with Robert one night, he was so fucking drunk, he was bouncing off the guardrails on each side of the road. He was stopped by one of the local police department uh, patrol cars. Cop walks up to the window, knows him by name, and says, Robert, get the hell out of here. Okay. So, Robert left. No questions asked. Nothing. He left. He leaves. He's about really, really made me think about some weird shit because I had asked him, I said, you know, Barry, do you you think Robert may have been involved in the other homicides or the disappearances? He goes, well, you know, now that you mentioned it, um, he did call me to go do some electrical work on his car. When I got there, I realized it was, he says it was an old ambulance, Vance, Vance shape uh, styled uh, ambulance that he had painted and he had soundproofed it. And he said, it kind of weirded me out a little bit because I said to him, well, why did you soundproof the the van? And he said, because I could put anybody I want in here and do whatever I want. Who's going to hear me? Well, the kind of interesting thing was <clears throat> there was a van seen during... Lisa Joy White's disappearance, Debbie Spickler's disappearance. So, with that in mind, now we're starting to develop our links. Okay, pretty strong links. Um, <clears throat> at the time of my interview, which was probably 2017, uh, the van was still intact in one piece. Uh, in Robert's possession, I notified the uh, state police who 
uh, jack shit about it. Okay, you could have got went, got a search warrant, went down there. Somebody could have held the van, got a search warrant, had the fucking thing flown down, shipped down, whatever the hell you wanted, and you may have solved six six disappearances in in uh, the Vernon area. But you know. Sometimes people just don't get it. If you want to solve crimes, you got to fucking work for it. And when somebody throws a gift in your lap, open it. Don't want to hear your excuses, open a damn thing. So, we're going back to what we were originally started. Charles Pierce was a big mouth. Charles Pierce <clears throat> was in the process of being extradited down to Florida for in the 70s for <clears throat> sexual abuse crimes. The Florida prison wasn't nice in the first place, but if you were somebody that sexually assaulted a child, your your life your life was probably short and very to maybe a year or two. <clears throat> so what does what does our friend Charles Pierce do? He claims responsibility for a homicide of a fourteen year old. So there were no leads, nothing, so they arrest this asshole, throw him in a clink. <clears throat> now he's killed fifty people. Okay. Um, so he tried to say that he had killed, um, uh, I believe he said he took Janice Pocket, who disappeared in, let's see, Pocket disappeared in 73. <clears throat> it was a, uh, a young boy. I don't remember his first name, his last name was Pugsley, who disappeared from uh, Lawrence, Massachusetts and in the 80s. The mistake is when people talk, listen to their sentences. He says, I put, I put Janice Pocket's body in my white van right next to Pugsley's body. Well, that would be physically impossible because Pugsley disappeared a decade later. Okay? This is what I'm saying. You have to listen to listen to a person's this when they speak, listen to each sentence and then reflect on the sentence to see if what they're telling you is plausible or not. So we knew he was bullshit there. He also admitted to kidnapping and killing people <clears throat> younger kids near this uh, certain cinemas and restaurants and this and that. And this is the year he killed them. Well, all of these places had been demolished before that even happened, before he said he did it. So it was physically impossible for him to do that. He continuously would take police to different sites. This is where I buried this one. That's where I buried that one. This is, listen, if you killed 50 freaking people, you know where at least one of them is buried. You could never produce anywhere where they were buried. So anyone who's believing that Charles Pierce had anything to do with anything, you know what? Find it. 
don't be a podcaster, don't don't be on TV, don't write books about it, because if you think Charles Pierce had anything to do with anything, you'd never make it in the real world of law enforcement. Charles Pierce was a bullshitter. Charles Pierce couldn't prove, couldn't remember names, couldn't remember locations. Um, when you do something tra- as traumatic as killing somebody, you remember everything. I've arrested people that kill people. They remember everything. It's too traumatic. Not just from the victim side, but from the suspect side. And then the two brothers. Two brothers had bullshit. Had nothing to do with anything in the freaking state of Connecticut. These people, these women were all taken, women, children, were all taken off the secondary roads. Okay? A person from out of state is not going to use a secondary road to kidnap people. Why? In the event that law enforcement is made aware of what's going on, you're not going to know where the hell to go. You're talking about decades before GPS systems even, cell phones, GPS systems. You're lost. And back then, Connecticut was rural. You're lost in a rural community trying to escape the cops because you took back roads. No. Out-of-state people will kill people along major thoroughfares. And they will usually dump bodies along main major thoroughfares because they do not want to get caught. So they are not by any means going to take a secondary road. So give that one up. And if you're thinking that and you've done this on it and done that on it, go back to school. doesn't work that way. Okay. Well, you know, this one may kill this one. He wasn't from here. This Okay. There are variables to everything. I get it. But statistically, from an investigative point of view, and logistically, it's just a bad thought. It's not even worth entertaining it, to be honest with you. So, with that being said, we pretty much... Now, at the same time, let me just go back for a second, kind of retrograde myself here. The LaRosa family had one brother, Nathan. Nathan was a very violent person. Nathan had mental health issues. Nathan and Robert, according to family members, uh, sexually assaulted all the females in the family, probably also females outside the family. So... We know what's going the dynamics of the family. We know the dynamics of Robert's sister disappearing, who also had contact with Nathan and Robert. We know Robert lied about the police report, a missing persons report. We know Robert's wife disappeared. We know Robert's girlfriend moved in right after that. We know that Robert was always pissed at his wife because she did have a, she had a, a, you know, a dependency problem. Uh, DCF contacted a lot of times because she was always hurting the kid, kids. um, And Robert didn't like it. So Robert probably just lost it and took her out of the picture. And it really doesn't matter now because Robert, although he's a person of interest, probably the major person of interest in all of these cases, he is deceased. Um, so 
there were links to this case, you know. Um, do I think it's still plausible to solve the cases? Yeah, I honestly do. Find that fucking van. Find the van. It's got to be somewhere. Somebody's got to know where it is. Last I knew, it was in North Carolina. Find the van. Send a trooper down there. Send two troopers down there. Send the FBI down there. I don't give a shit who you send down there. Secure that van until you get a freaking warrant. As a matter of fact, you have, could have the feds do it because it went over state lines. It's now part of a crime scene that went over state lines. It's FBI's territory. Let them do it. And then swab the shit out of that damn thing. And you know what? Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if I told you so. Um, but, and especially in these cases, at least you a white case, the Rosa cases, um, the pocket case, which Janice pocket and Spickler, which are all well-known cases in Connecticut. <clears throat> Our predators were living within that geographical area. There were too many people missing in such a short period of time in that area. There was no way that anybody was coming out of from out of state and just hitting or focusing on that one area. It is not statistically possible. It's, even by the numbers, it's not possible. The probability is highly unlikely. So find a hobby, okay? Find a freaking hobby because you're, you're just talking crap and it's... It, it's, it's, it's more detrimental to the case when you bring in this bullshit to sell your books and sell your movies and, and sell your crap. Get rid of it because, you know, you're throwing shit into the case, cases that are misleading, have nothing to do with the case, and it's not helping anybody do, figure anything out, okay? Um so I think we have our person of interest. I think we have our second person of interest, and probably our third person of interest, all through who I who I mentioned. Uh, they all knew these family. They they all knew or at one time had contact with each and every one of these people, each one of these victims. So take it as you will. The individual responsible for the disappearances of the Vernon Ellington area was one or two of our people of interest, maybe three. The demographics of the motives of they changed after 74, after Susan LaRosa's homicide, that they were white females, but they were older, their bodies weren't hidden, they were they were uh, dumped. And if you look at the, the birth dates, or the dates they occurred, they're all in either July or June. When was Susan LaRosa born? On the 22nd. Just giving you a heads up, not saying that the Zodiac's out there, but there's something in the numbers. Janice Pocket's medical records disappeared. 
I wonder if we looked for medical records for the other girls that disappeared. I wonder if we know what schools the relative that was a janitor worked in, and if they had disappeared. Could they have been targeted by using addresses for the medical records? Sure they could. So, with all that being said, you have to look at these crimes and links statistically. You have to look at them logically. You have to be an investigator to know what you're doing. You can't just throw that title on because that title's earned, not made up, okay? So, I hope down the, down the road that somebody eventually will the state prosecutor's office will pick these cases back up. You only have one good witness left. Barry, who lives up in New Canaan. You may have the evidence to everything you need down in North Carolina. So, with that being said, think about it. And like I always tell you, this is episode 20. Episode 21, I'm not sure what we'll do with that one. We might do the, did we really land on the moon conspiracy theory, which is kind of interesting. It's really screwed up too. Uh, but just remember, when you're in that parking lot late at night, when you're walking in the path in the woods when it's dark, or you're walking down a dark street, through a dark alleyway, just remember you never know who's lurking behind you and what their intentions are. And until the next episode, I will see you then.